0: Oh my stars, Steve. My stars and stripes. We have some exciting news. Shall we tell them? We should reveal that Chinwag is hitting the road again and going on a West Coast tour. Yes, that's right. If you missed us in your fair city, truly, friends, don't fret, don't fear, don't have a panic attack. (laughs) Do not panic. We will be recording live Chinwags in May in Los Angeles, Portland, and Seattle. Yes. In L.A., we'll be at Dynasty Typewriter on May 14th. You can go to chinwagpod.fm slash Los Angeles for tickets. And on May 16th, we're going to be in Portland at Revolution Hall. For those tickets, go to chinwag.fm slash Portland. And we'll be at Town Hall, the great town hall in Seattle on May 17th. For tickets to that, go to chinwagpod.fm slash Seattle. You do not want to miss this. It's going to be awesome. It's going to be mighty, mighty. So get your tickets at chinwagpod.fm, and we will see you there. Come on out, Waggers. Come out, Waggers. Come out. (laughs) Come out of hiding.
1: You Michiganders, he says, a grain of sand, because you guys got those sand dunes or whatever they are. Beautiful dunes. No, but you take it with yes. a grain of salt, Paul. Oh. Salt. Come you on. know what?
2: I'm going to fight for Paul on this one. You know what happens Thanks. when sand, a sand goes inside an oyster and it creates a pearl. And that's what happens for people from Michigan. They create pearls. There we go. See? So that, Take that, you, you
1: have a lot of oysters up there in Michigan? <laughs>
3: <laughs>
2: <laughs> Nothing better than a Michigan oyster,
3: John. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Let me say
2: that. Yeah. You're going to want to boil that <laughs> for a while. <laughs> <Yeah>.
1: <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, Jordan, before you came on, I was talking to our great technological wizard, Max. And we don't identify him by last name because... No,
2: you can't do that with wizards. They'll just disappear like that. No, you like can't that. do
1: that. He goes by Max. May not even be his real name.
2: And and you, he, may not, you may not even know his last name.
1: He may not have a last name, <laughs> but Whatever's
2: convenient for you. But
1: here's the thing that is so strange about Max. He was talking about the fact that he was in some music camp up in, who knows, you know, where do they have him, Vermont or, you know... All those places up in that part of the Maine or somewhere, right? <laughs> do you, Nova do you think, Scotia. Do
2: you, do you think music only exists in cold
1: climates? No, that, no. But the reason assumption? I want to tell you is that there's a reason for this because he told me that he is he's. There were a lot of his friends who were playing the trombone. Now, here's the thing that that I I used to play the clarinet and the bass clarinet and and I I look back and I say, why didn't I not play guitar? why did i not learn to play the piano why the clarinet okay but clarinet is one thing the trombone who the hell plays the trombone i mean my 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 goal in life is to learn how to play the trombone how do you even move the thing
2: like thi- you know what do you think the, the, are you the, a the, trombone fan am, am i a trombonist i i have respect for those who play the trombone because the amount of space you need to play a trombone comes with <laughs> A certain amount of earned confidence, like you know, one that you'll never live in a place that is that is uh, small. You can't like a New York apartment. You there are no New York
1: apartment. There are no trombonists in New York. There's right. just
2: not space for it. But I think if you if you're the kind of person who's like, I know that I deserve that amount of space around me. I will always have that amount of space. I think I think the reason you don't see so many trombonists is because those are confident people. They choose to be trombonists, and they already have excelled. They have become CEOs at this point. Well, you know,
1: they may be isolated, too, because you think about this. So if I have a trombone, you better get out of my way. Because when I go to play some of those notes, I've got to slide that thing way out there, and I could whack somebody. So... You know, I think part of it is they're 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 loners, too. If yeah. you're a trombonist, you must be... Is that what you call them? A trombonist? They're I guess you would have to be a loner.
2: Tromboners. Because, I think yeah. the tromboners officially. Th- that's the, <laughs> the original social distancing. I think trombone was the the instrument that was made for COVID. You have to stay six feet apart if you're in a trombone choir. What, is it yeah. a gaggle of trombonists or a, a murder of tromboners? Uh, uh, well, I mean, does anybody like... McCartney or or you know Bruce
1: Springsteen say, God, we're missing a trombonist. I remember on Saturday Night Live when they said we need a little bit more cowbell. Now I get cowbell. I could play cowbell, you know, for like one of the great, great rock bands. But I mean, does anybody ever say this would have been a perfect, a perfect song if we only had a trombonist? And then they yell, Is there a trombonist in the house? Probably no one ever says, yeah, we've got one out here in the back row. I mean, we'd have to ask Paul Feig about this, but... I don't know if he ever put trombonus in his
2: in his uh, any of his uh, productions. I mean, what do you think? They're, they're a comical instrument. I mean, I do think you you primarily need marching bands on hand to <laughs> to need or necessitate a trombone. Uh, these are some of the really important questions that we're gonna uh, ask our our next guest. I'm sure. I hope he's ready for these types of really thoughtful interesting i mean i guess the question i have is trombone the the funniest instrument we we already have a tromboner pun going that's fun it makes a loud sound that feels like flatulence the tuba i think is perhaps another argument you could make the argument that it's the most comedic instrument um i think of the well, you oboe know, since we, oboe we got has these... got to be up there a, pi- yeah, well, a piccolo a piccolo oboe piccolo. is that a, yeah. A, yeah. yeah oboe I, yeah uh huh
1: uh-huh. but but here's the thing about the tuba and i know you Being a big Michigander, and I guess uh, our guest is a a big Michigander, okay, but you should know that, you know, there is this thing called Script Ohio, which the Ohio State Marching Band plays. No, don't be don't be mocking this until I finish this story. Then you can Curse mock of is all dead. you want. Cursive you is want. dead.
2: It's an antiquated but, art form, and it's antiquated on the field. No. Much so what like happens? A lot of the, okay. Now, look,
1: you were talking about trombonists. There's probably trombonists in the Ohio State marching band, and I'm I want to be clear about this. I am not attacking trombonists, and I have great respect for anybody who plays the trombone. But you brought up the tuba, so you know when they do the script Ohio, and maybe you don't know this because you don't read that much. Uh, you know, uh, but Jordan, but here's the thing when it goes to, they, somebody gets to dot the I. Okay. And it's usually the tuba player and they will march to the middle of the field and, and they'll do that. They'll bow down and, and make the I in the, uh, in the script, Ohio. And it's amazing the number of people who have been called to dot the I. And if this podcast really works, maybe I could put a word in for you to come down here and dot the I and you could do it first time in history with a trombone. I mean, it's it's not at all great. surprising
2: to me that it, it, at Ohio State, the highest form of success is completing the grammar of a four-letter word. Like, <laughs> like that's 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 the hey, high bar for success know, I don't want to go Ohio.
1: back in time, but at least we don't slug our opponents. And by the way, I saw on the oh, interview boy. with uh, the coach of Michigan State, because now what they're trying to say as a result of all of your – crazy antics with your basketball team, is they asked the, they asked Izzo, the coach of Michigan State, well, maybe we shouldn't have a handshake anymore. And Izzo, well, he just exploded. It's worth watching on YouTube. But he says, if there are no hands to shake, we're just going to shake the air. And I thought that was stand-up. Speaking of stand-up, maybe we should get to our
2: next guest huh? that was wow well wow. that that's how as, was that
1: for it that was really smooth
2: as awkward a transition as your run for president was uh <laughs> well we we are we are we are blessed governor um our guest today paul fig he's an award-winning director creator writer actor producer author Here's what we're talking about. If you don't know Paul Figg, we're talking about Freaks and Geeks, The Office, Nurse Jackie, movies like Bridesmaids, The Heat, Spy, Ghostbusters, A Simple Favor. Here's here's a stat for you. His movies have grossed over a billion dollars worldwide, and he has two new series coming out March 17th, Welcome to Flatch on Fox, Hulu, and Minx on HBO Max, and if that's not enough, if you're still like, I don't know if I want to listen to the rest of this podcast, he has a Netflix film starring Charlize Theron, a newcomer on the scene. Really excited to see what she's all about. And Kerry Washington. And it's called The School for Good and Evil. It comes out this fall. Also, if you're still like, I'm not sure, he makes a mean cocktail. He's got a book about cocktails coming up. All right? It's the one and only Paul Fig. Welcome, Paul. Oh, my Paul. gosh. Oh, look, look, wait. Just let me set my trombone down and I'll uh, be right <laughs> <running laughs> with you, fellas. Exactly.
3: You should know that, but uh, I think the trombone is probably, I would say, uh, comedy instrument number one, mm-hmm. because you get that. The, right. yeah, so, uh, so, John, I would ball? actually call for a trombone player. That,
1: could you give us that, that, that vocal again? How, how did that trombone go? Man. That's excellent. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> I feel like I'm in a band now, a marching band. <laughs>
3: well, you, 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 you do know in the, in, the, in the music world, though, the butt of every single joke is the trombone Factually. They all they do is make trombone jokes. So uh, I love the trombone. I love trombone players. I know some trombone players, uh, but sadly they are, they um you know they 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 take the heat. Yeah,
2: uh, Paul. I wonder, as somebody who has uh, you know an, an acclaimed comedic career. Sound effects, goofy sound effects. It's something that maybe it's one of our first ways into comedy, the whoopee cushion, the fart noise. Uh, Is that something you look down on? Do you feel like you evolved beyond? How do you approach sound effects now that you've, You've been in this industry for so long. Uh, I don't look down on
3: anything that gets old. <laughs> I, I like to specialize in what I call high and low. So sometimes when I was doing Freaks and Geese, people thought I was sort of classy. But if you watch that show, every single episode has a fart joke. In it. So, so So that's how I like to roll. I, you know, sound is kind of everything. That when I, as I go through my movies and we're doing post, you're constantly going like, oh, put a sound on that. It's not necessarily like a cartoony sound, but if you punctuate something with like a, a big hit or or something like that, or, or just, you know, even just the rustling of somebody's sleeve at the right moment, you get a laugh that, w- that you wouldn't normally have. So I am all in on, on sound effects. Goofy is – as long as they fit tonally with what you're doing, go for it.
2: Yeah, I've noticed that even subliminally, right? Like even, even the quietest door shut that might have a little bit of a whistle that if you tune up and it sounds like oh, a, a Looney Tunes cartoon, 10% yeah. of that might at least implant in your brain the, uh, the, the rhythm of comedy.
3: Yeah, well, I was just watching the, the latest uh, season of Search Party. And there's this really funny moment where where they just the two friends who've been in forever, like decide they're going to going to have sex. And so he goes, oh, I guess we should. And he unzips just the, his, you know, Adirondack jacket and they do the loudest zipper. And I just I burst out laughing because it just that's like a perfect use of something you wouldn't think you wouldn't notice as an audience. Just go like, why is that funny? And so there you go.
1: Paul, you know, it was interesting in reading about, well, I mean, your whole life and how you struggled and, and finally made it. But it was interesting to me when you were talking about doing stand-up and it, it got the sense that, you know, you were saying it's sort, sort of for a younger person. Um, maybe two things. Why, why did you say that? And secondly, and now you guys are going to howl when I ask this question, what is the difference between improv and stand-up?
3: <laughs> well, it's a good question uh, for, 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 you know, a non-comedy professional. Um, I mean, I, what, I, I think stand-up is a young person's game to get into. Once you're in it, then, you know, go until till you drop because then actually you get better and better because you have more of a, you have more of a take on the world. What happens when you first get into standup is you become very much about making fun of pop culture because that's just sort of the low hanging fruit. And you don't, haven't found your voice and you also don't have a lot of experience in the world. But then as you go on, if you get better and better, you become more about the human condition and making fun of that. And, and, th- and that's where you want that perspective on the world. But it's, it's a tough game to get into and you really have to, especially when I was coming up, I mean, you just, I had to go to like three comedy clubs every night, driving all over town, doing my act, trying to get in, you know, but, but um, yeah, so, but it's, it's great. What I love about standup is so many people go like, Oh my god, I could never do that. And you go, "Yeah, because you don't have the ego that would make you a stand-up. If you have the ego that would make you a stand-up, you can't not do it." And if you're bombing, everybody go, "Oh my god, it's so terrible." All you do is think, "Well, these people are idiots because they don't get what I'm doing." So, it's it's a giant ego thing, but thank goodness because I think it's the most pure art form in the world. And then as far as, as improv goes, improv is more, you go up with no script. You really need to be with other people and somebody, you know, give me an idea. You're in a donut shop. Okay. And you're lawyers and go, you know, so it's that whereas stand-up tends to be very, very written. Um, even though you can improv within it and kind of go off to the audience, you have to have a firm written base.
2: Now I've always felt, so I come from improv is my background. And it's what I did for a decade plus. And when I got to the daily show, It was a mix, the writers were a mix of improvisers and stand-ups. And what I always felt for creating a show like The Daily Show, you sort of needed both. The first half of the day, the improv brain, the the brain that says yes, the brain that's all about brainstorming, there's no wrong answers. You throw out a million ideas, you're supporting one another, you're generating the second half of the day was for the stand-ups where you're crafting and you're trying to make those jokes because you got to be on TV and you got to be efficient in a few hours. And so they really work together. I know that's always the case. People talk about, do you use improv on your films and what have you? And I feel like that is often a, a generic question in some ways. But I, I, I am curious even more specifically about your films within it, which are um, – uh, some are very precise, and I know some you're not even working with your own script. I think back; to uh, last Christmas was a movie that I thought was really. I loved the chemistry of that movie. I thought that movie. I thought that movie really popped. There, there are movies like Bridesmaids where you can feel comedians bounce off one another in a way that feels like they're finding rhythms. But I even look at a movie like Last Christmas that feels much more, um, much more scripted. I know. I believe Emma Thompson wrote that script. Yeah, correct. But I'm like, but I, but even if the dialogue didn't feel, uh. Overly improvised, the relationship felt like it had the lived-in feel of improv, and I wonder how you utilize that tool on on something that might be a bunch of improvisers on the scene, and how you utilize that tool on a, a more scripted situation.
3: Yeah, it's funny. Like some of you know, some people who don't like my movies go, "Oh, it's all just they just make it all up." It's like you never do that. I mean, if you just go, that's just madness. You wouldn't go in; you'd have a mess. But you know, I use improv as basically we work really hard on the script. It's a very firm. Uh, blueprint because, you know, every scene has to advance the story in a certain way. But then once you're in it, you go like, oh, well, this joke can change. We can take a little detour here. You don't want to take giant ones because you are just gonna have too much for the movie, but you just want it to always feel fresh. You know, so, so it's, and that's why I try to shoot uh, what we call cross coverage, where basically I, if there are two people are talking, I'll have a camera, one camera on one of the people and one camera on the other so that then if they surprise each other or do anything in the moment it's i get both sides of it you know when we did bridesmaids like that opening scene where where um uh, Maya Rudolph and Kristen Wiig are in the coffee shop just making each other laugh we shot that for like 6 hours with the you know getting them both on camera so they were just making each other laugh and then I would throw something to surprise one of them and so that's when you get this kind of lightning in a bottle feel and that that's kind of the way we do quote unquote improv on the set but then with ones that are more you know, like, again, you know, Last Christmas is a great example that, you know, Emma, Tom- the great Emma Thompson wrote that. So, you know, she's won two, two Oscars for her writing. So you don't, you don't go into like, oh, let's throw this out, you know. Um, But then it becomes what I call sort of performance improv, where you go, try it angry this time, try it, you know, goofy this time, try it. Th- and, you know, same, the same with Simple Favor, uh the movie that I, I did, we didn't, we didn't deviate too much. But like Anna Kendrick, I go like, Try a really crazy, you know, and, and more specific than that. But you, so you get, they, you can take a line and there's a million different ways to to um, deliver it. And that changes the performance and changes the tone and makes it still feel very, you know, in the moment.
1: Well, Jordan and, and, and Paul, you know, and I th- think about this whole thing, I mean, doing stand-up, I mean, to me is terrifying or, or improv for that matter. Is this a gift that people have? I mean, if, say you go to film school, Paul, I know you went to Southern California, you went to film school. Yeah. Um, I mean, do they teach, I I think they could teach you to do dramatic acting, I think, but I'm not sure they can teach you how to be funny or clever or you, or improvisation or, I mean, is this a gift that certain people have and other people try
3: it and they fail? How does that work? Yeah, I I do think there's a gene. I, I do think there's a comedy gene. I mean, but but then you've got, you can either be like really good at it or you can be amazing at it. And I think when you're amazing at it, you've got the gene. You know, if you look at like Chris Farley, like he was bred to be funny. <laughs> like whatever DNA he got, that was comedy DNA. Same with Kristen Wiig, you know, Melissa McCarthy. These people have it. But then I've worked with a lot of people. You go like, oh, I can find what's funny in them. They're not necessarily like funny if I just let them on their own, but if they can tap into that real thing in themselves, then they can be funny. And, you know, and, and I, you know, used to go like take these courses at places where teach you improv and all that. And it was always a, a mixed bag because. Again, you go like, oh, this is gonna open somebody up, but they're clearly not gonna have a comedy career versus, oh wow, this person was funny and now they're learning the rules and now they can really be funny. So I do think it is kind of born in you, but you can still you can still be funny if you work it.
2: I think that I, I've noticed too, as somebody who's who's taught improvisation for a while, uh like I think you start to learn the rules and you learn learn the rules of communication, but something you get. Within those places is community, and you connect with people who have those sensibilities and so e- even if you aren't taught comedy those those people who make it are i know uh i've done I- uh, improv with Neil Casey, who is another oh, space yeah. uh, who That's is great. just like just one of those. Inherently, incredibly funny, thoughtful, interesting people uh, who probably didn't need an improv class to be funny, uh, but found in a, an improv class or an improv community, other people with those shared sensibilities who make each other laugh on stage, and suddenly you build and learn from those people. So at the, at the very least, I see some of those institutions as ways to at least put funny people in a world in a room together where they then can kind of start to build that sort of uh, sensibility together.
3: Yeah, well, I mean, if you look at actually my movies, most of the people I work with, the comedy people, are from improv. They have a very heavy improv background because they are all team players, like you say. You know, I love stand-ups, but stand-ups in general tend to be – you're a solo act, so you are the one doing it. You're always looking for the joke, and sometimes people who come from stand-up are – they're not necessarily going with the flow. You see them thinking and trying to find the the gag that they're going to get in versus – you know, an improv person will kind of go with it. They'll find the gag, but it will be from listening to the other people and not being in competition with those people. And I think that's sort of the big difference. And that's why, you know, in my movies, I want—I need to make sure everybody's supporting everybody else and trying to make everybody as
2: funny as they themselves are being. I mean, stand-ups are assholes. You could say it, Paul. <laughs> they they, they <laughs> are. Having
3: been one for a long time. Well, my friend Rick Overton, um, you know, great comedian has been around forever. He always used to, when you do a show with him, He liked to bring all the comedians up on stage to do improv. And it was always a really mixed bag because sometimes people go with it. Other times it was just literally a battle to see who could get the funniest punchline out. And it was always like, oh, maybe this is not the perfect way to go. We'll be right back.
2: And now back to the show.
1: You know, Paul, we've lost a a lot of comedians. This just occurred to me here. And it's what's so great about this podcast. You can listen and things pop into your head is there is there an inherent sadness in people who have comedic talent
3: it you know it's interesting i mean there are a lot of people that have come from sort of i don't say troubled backgrounds but who just aren't aren't that funny in real life or who, who have come from a really bad situation, but it's, but it doesn't hold across the board um, because it, it depends what kind of comedy you do. You know, I think a lot of times when people do very biting tough comedy think they might come from a little bit more of that. Whereas people who like goofy comedy, you know, like myself, I had a very happy upbringing and, you know, my parents were, you know, the same, you know, we're married my my entire, their entire lives together. So I tend to like kind of goofier stuff, but some people I know and that's when I was in the stand up world, boy, some, some comics you worked with were really dark, uh, you know, kind of behind the scenes. And, you know, a lot of times, uh, they get that way because they go, Oh, I, you know, I had it so bad. And now that I've made it, here's the thing. And this kind of applies to everybody famous. There's two kinds of fame, two ways you deal with fame. Either you go, Oh, I made it. I'm so happy. I'm going to do whatever I can to stay in this. And I'm just, I appreciate it all. The other side is like, I made it and now screw everybody who, who didn't believe in me and I'm going to take everybody down. And, um, I, I find that, uh, comedians can fall a little more into that second world, but, um, but not, not always, you know, these are all very generalized things, but yeah, there, there there's, there's some darkness in comedy.
2: Actually, I want to, I want to turn that, Governor, when you hear that in the world of politics and people who, who find success and fame or notoriety, uh, do they go down those similar paths? Uh, what, what, what did you notice for people who started to get some of that success in the political spectrum? How did it affect them?
1: You know, I I have to think about it, Jordan. Um, You know, what goes through my mind is, are there any stars today, really superstars under the age of 50? You know, when you think about it, um, who are they? You count them on one hand. The same thing would be true in politics. How many people have really emerged where they are, you know, bigger than life, a Colin Powell or, you know... uh, you know, or Reagan or somebody like that. I mean, I just wonder if there are there that many stars today, because that box that we all use kinds of chops everybody down to size. And so when I think about who are the the superstars in anything in life today, I think it's kind of hard to climb that mountain because Paul may have touched on it. When you get up there, then you say, okay, I don't want anybody else up on the mountain. I don't know if that's it. Or this uh, this attitude that if somebody's successful, we kind of want to bring them down. We want to we want to make them real human. And in the old days, you know, we didn't do that. That people had their private lives and they got to do what they wanted to do, and we respected them and admired them. But today, uh, who are the superstars today? Yeah, you got Tom Hanks. Maybe you've got. Maybe you've got Clooney. I I don't know. Um, what do you guys think about that? Paul, what do you think about that?
3: Well, I think it's very generational, you know, because I, it, it, and also the Internet does a lot with this kind of thing. Um, you know, I think it's basically like I kind of I, I always kind of feel like you sometimes, John, where I'm just like, Who? but then I'll talk to somebody, you know, in their teens or in their 20s, and they can unspool to me their their superstars, you know, so I think it becomes very subjective in that way. Um, But, uh, you know, it's everything's there's so much more stuff now. That's the biggest thing is there used to be only four networks and a few movie studios and these movies came out. Now, look at the amount of content that comes out on all these things. And it's almost like every streaming service is now starting to get its own superstars and every, you know, I mean, really, that's kind of what it comes down to. And the Internet has its superstars. You know, uh, when I'm casting, sometimes somebody will go like, oh, this person's, you know, they're popular on YouTube. I'm like, oh, and then they'll (laughs) millions of followers who are rabid. And you're like, wow. okay." so to their to their audience. They are the superstars. I think it's I think we're going to actually find that the business gets more and more like that, you know, because as again, the streamers and I love the streamers because they are letting us create content in a way that we didn't have the qu- the, the quantity that we could do ba- back then. But it's going to start creating its own its own personal superstars who then will either get loaned out or chances are won't get loaned out because they're all very much in competition now. You know, we have a problem where when we're trying to make a movie it used to be, you could just rent studio space at any studio, you know, they didn't care it was just money. But now what happens is a lot of, sometimes these streamers will kind of buy or full-time rent a studio and will not, they'd rather have stages empty than rent it out to, a competing streamer or studio so that they can't, you know, so they can kind of find that way is to, uh, you know, limit their output. Um, So it's going to get a little tribal, I think.
1: Uh, Jordan, to answer your question, it just occurred to me. I think the danger for politicians is when they believe that their identity is attached to their job. And, And let me tell you what I mean by that. So, you know, if you're an elected official, you go to the basketball game at the high school and, you get there and they have a little seat reserved for you up front, or you go to the Michigan game and you're sitting in the president's box. And, and you know, then there's this sense in a quiet moment, this is where it's really dangerous, what you kind of have to have that. Because if I don't have it, what do I have? And for a politician who can overcome that and understand, hey, it's just a bunch of BS, right? That you are who you are and you're strong and to yourself but I think that's something that captures politicians. They, they want to continue to be important, even though really they're not really all that important, but some people treat them that way. There is a danger in that, as you can imagine.
3: Yeah, uh, the trappings. I mean, there there is a the, there's a, a famous restaurant in L.A. that I have gone to for years, and there was one table it was the the table. You know, like I used to see Billy Wilder back in the old days at that table, and so I was like, oh, if I could ever get that a table, and they started seating me at that table, it was like, oh my god, I've I've made it. But then sometimes you go in and you go like, oh, somebody bigger's at the table, you don't get the table, <laughs> and it's a real
2: assault on your on your ego. <laughs> I thought there was um in in Chicago. Uh, I used to perform at the Improv Olympic, and there was a wall at the Improv Olympic, and the dream was to get on that wall. And I always thought, like, if I work hard, you know, my my picture could be on the wall, and that's permanent. That means you've made it; it will always be there. And then, finally, after a decade, I got a little bit of success. I got uh, on the Daily Show, and, and at, at one point, it was like, now I could be on that wall and the wall had been torn down. <laughs> the theater had been sold, torn down, Teared It didn't down exist that anymore. Wall, Mr. Gorbachev. That's <laughs> why I'm for a build that wall uh, it, policy all the way across. Actually yeah. so, Paul, I'm curious though about you talk about like these superstars and these how we have found all these niche streamers, we found uh, you know, you know interesting ways to tell stories now in that uh, and I'm curious if you think if those those next quote unquote superstars will we see them in the comedy world on the big screen? It's it's you know there's plenty of articles being written about how you know the perhaps the death of cinema or at least these blockbuster comedies that you have been a part of of so many of them they're getting fewer and fewer and fewer and there's more expectations put on their success. Uh, do you see that? Do you see that with trepidation, and or do you see opportunities with uh, comedy living more and more on streamers? How do you you approach something like that?
3: Well, it's a weird time. I mean, definitely the streamers have really embraced comedy, but... I, it, it's funny, I've i been angsting about this all last week so I'm um, to bring it up because I do miss the way that we've always made our comedies which we make them for the big screen we do these test screenings we'll do like 9 or 10 test screenings over the course of the months so that we're putting it together try different jokes and we record the audience and my editor and I sit in the middle of the audience to hear how they're laughing and all that and we really engineer it so that when it plays in front of an audience it's going to get maximum vocal <laughs> response and they're, it's get, they're getting, they're less, uh, the studios are less wanting to do this. The problem is that all these studios now, and I guess it's not a problem, but it's, it's the part of the conundrum. They all are starting their own streamers. So they want to feed the streamers and they want to get people to go over to the streamers. So, you know, they don't have as much motivation to put it in a theater If they go, oh, people, we want to get more subscribers, so let's put it here. And the only place they can get it is here, so they're going to subscribe and come and and, and watch it there. And that's great because, again, we get stuff made, but I do miss sitting in an audience. You know, the first time we showed Bridesmaids, the first time that dress shop scene – We were just, we were like, I don't know if this is going to work or not. And suddenly the place like literally tore the roof off. You don't, you don't get, we still, I still test my movies, even though they're going to go on a streamer. I still make them do these test screenings because I need to at least hear it. But yeah, I, I would be very sad if we lost that, but it's, it's, the business is changing where those kind of middle, budget movies don't necessarily get to go in the theaters. But I do think now that the cinema's coming back, theaters are coming back because of the pandemic kind of slowly, hopefully getting behind us, I do think you're gonna feel a resurgence because people just wanna be around other people and enjoy things.
2: Yeah, I I mean, it's so funny you bring that up. I I have such a vivid memory of that being in the theater, watching Bridesmaid, it was so so exciting. A a movie you had heard about, I think I was at that first weekend, that, that place is full and yes, that dress shop scene, It was insanity, and to watch uh, hundreds of people laugh that hard—I've been at Jackass movies when that takes place. But like that, that cathartic feel in that room with so many um, uh, people—you miss it. You really do.
1: Paul, do you when you do you now? It's interesting because you kind of focus group your films, which is I found very interesting. And I don't know what you do. I guess you can go in and recut it or whatever. But do you kind of know? When a film is good, you know, it's sort of like I listen to music and I wonder people that make, you know, who write these songs, do they know the song's going to work? I mean, do you, how, do you, how do you think about that? Both the focus group part of this and do you in your bones know what's going to work without anybody having to tell you?
3: Well, the minute you think you know, you get screwed. Um, you know, I would say you have to be confident enough to be not be confident. And and so going into the, pro- finding the project, writing the project, making the project, you have this kind of confidence of like, this is going to be good. I know this is going to be good, but you're always working towards making it good by how you cast it. The performance is every moment on the set. It's like, okay, we got to make this better and better. Let's get all, let's get alternate jokes. Let's try different things. So I'll have a bunch of things I can use when I cut it. But then there's always this, moment when you're in the editing room, as you're putting together that first cut and getting ready to take it to the theater. Well, I, where I suddenly go like, is this the worst movie ever, been? <laughs> you know, and, and, and it's a very sincere thing, because you, you get so into it and you're so, you know, kind of happy with it and, and, and the people around you are, are working on it. And so that's why you need that test audience. Cause sometimes you'll go in like, all right, this is going to kill and, and it bombs or it just doesn't do well or the reverse. I mean, when I did spy, I remember right before our first test screening, I said to my editor, I said, is this movie really bad? I guess I just kept saying like, this movie might be really bad. I just, I, I have no perspective on it. And we got the, one of the highest first test scores I've ever had, you know, but then I've had other ones that were, you know, like I said, you're confident and you don't get it. You, Nobody sets out to make a bad movie so you know you you always have the feeling that it's going to work it just sometimes it's just about the minutia of the moments and if something doesn't work we always say it, if something doesn't work it doesn't mean that doesn't work it might mean that something 10 minutes earlier didn't work and so you've screwed up the flow to it and so that's where always we're like forensic scientists going in like oh I think it's this 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 shorten 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 things change out jokes and, you will know, usually, you know, I, I've always had success at getting it to where it needs to be. So sometimes it's taken a lot more steps than, than uh, you know, than other times.
2: And w- let's expand outside beyond that. You're listening to an audience at a test screening and how they respond to your jokes. But also you have to listen to a culture, like when Ghostbusters, as Ghostbusters was coming out, that uh, such hate and misogyny was aimed at at that film and that film became an avatar for so many other things so much other bullshit that other people wanted to take out on on a film and people working to make something creative and beautiful and fun like uh one, how do you not lose your humanity in, in working on something like that with, uh, that I, I have no doubt you, you loved and crafted and to hear people come at it? And two, how much of that, that was, that came out in 2016 in the heat of a very heated election where you had a candidate who, um, was openly misogynistic and that was part of the conversation that became two sides. Do you support this? Do you not support this? How much can you attribute that to, Uh, I hate to say his name, but even like the rhetoric that was around Donald Trump as that movie was coming out, how much do you attach uh, the anger aimed at Ghostbusters at something like that?
3: It. I mean, it's it's you. It's one of those things you you you, you know it's happening. I mean, I, Trump literally put out a thing that he goes like another Ghostbusters are women. What's going on? So like right there, <laughs> he laid it out. God, I, I thought we were on with it, him
1: for a second. The way you just did the divorce. Well, that divorce, that was very good. Awesome. Yes, <laughs> thank you so
3: much. It's been burned into my psyche. Trust me. Um, no, you you, you kind of you know it's there, and you just go like, you know, put my head down and just do this. I mean, we wrote a couple of jokes and put in just because we knew the backlash was so much, you know, so we kind of did our nod to it and then go like, all right, let's just move on. And then you just kind of can do what you do. And, and you go, you know what? The politics of it are out there. And, you know, there's a lot of people organized against it and there was a lot of stuff against it. But all you can do is go, I'm making this thing. Movie, the great thing about movies, I love recorded medium, if you will. It sounds so sterile. But, you know, anything that you put down on film or tape, it exists forever. You just got to get it right once and it exists forever. If you make something like that, unless you're doing a news program, that is only relevant in the moment, then you've kind of failed as an artist because you need to be making things that are going to stand the test of time. And you know that once we get past, you know, hopefully, whether it's a year or to five years or 10 years past the controversy and people just stumble across it on cable and go, oh, that's really fun. Oh, that's, you know, that's what you're kind of leaving almost like a a time capsule for somebody else because you get too involved in in all the BS, then you just, you just, you you, you hit a point of stasis and you can't do anything, you know? So you gotta just go, I already hear it, let it go and just go like, oh, is it going to affect our bottom line when we come out? Yes, it probably will, but at least we made the movie that we all loved, and uh, you soldier on.
1: I was interested, Paul, in reading that when you went through this with Ghostbusters, you said that you were really shaken by the social media reaction. I found that really interesting. And now I think about, uh, about Bill Maher, somebody who I know you've opened for, I think. You know him pretty well. You know, his whole narrative has changed. And uh I was asked to go on a show and one of his producers said to the guy working with me, well, you know, he has Republicans don't like him and Democrats don't trust him. And my friend said to to the, to his person, well, they could form a club together. I was surprised that you were so rattled by that. I take it you don't get rattled anymore by social media criticism. It's been funny, Jordan. You know, we've had a couple of guests who they're very sensitive to the social media criticism, you know. you got to be somewhat aware of it, but sensitive is, you know, maybe mine is coming
3: yet. We'll see. <laughs> well, you know, I, I let my – I didn't say let my guard down. My my relationship with the internet was always lovely because, you know, I had created Freaks and Geeks, and we were one of the first shows to even have like a message board. So we were always interacting with, with the fans and all that. So then when I got to Twitter – Everybody who was following me was very nice. It was just like my little group. So, you know, it was a bubble. It was definitely a bubble of just people who were fans of what I was doing. And and I would, you know, do these, like, I'd go out to dinner and just, like, do all night just writing these things back and forth to people. And people really enjoyed it. So I kind of got lulled into this thing because i would hear other people like having trouble with haters i was like well that's weird i don't you know i don't i don't have that so when it came at me uh for ghostbusters it was literally the old nerd bullied nerd in me just lost his mind because i was like oh i'm i'm past this point in my life where i'm going to be bullied and people are going to call me names and come at me and and, and all that so it, it just, it broke the bubble in such a a shocking way to me. But it also was like, you know, it was, I had to, I had to have that experience because, you know, if I'm walking around going, like, everybody loves me, you know, then what's the point? So now you take it with a grain of sand. But I will say, soul, don't think soul, that anytime sand. I read one soul. of those bad ones, it doesn't sell you Well, like, you
1: Michiganders, he says a grain of sand because you guys got those sand dunes or whatever they are beautiful dunes no but you take it with yes. a grain of salt paul oh. salt Come you on. know what
2: i'm gonna fight for paul on this one you know what happens Thanks. when sand a sand goes inside an oyster and it creates a pearl and that's what happens for people from michigan they create pearls. there we go see so that, so take you have that a lot of, you
1: have a lot of oysters up there in michigan <laughs> <laughs>
3: huh? nothing better than a michigan oyster john <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Let <me say> that. <laughs> yeah. you're gonna, gonna, gonna want to boil that for a while <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
2: We'll be right back. And now back to the show. Uh, Paul, you know, you're from Michigan. Freaks and Geeks was set in Michigan. Uh like how how does uh your midwesterness, your Michiganness, how did that shape the way you approach comedy? Do you feel like it's still there or present in some ways?
3: Yeah, I, I, I feel very much that that um comedy is very sort of regional in its tone. I find I've always found that like when I moved to L.A., it was like, oh, the L.A. and New York's like comedy was much bigger in, in that it could be broader. And I found that in the Midwest, we have this kind of real B.S. meter in us. That kind of goes, Oh, that's fake, or that's too big, or I don't believe that. And so I think we, we kind of demand an honesty out of our characters that a lot of times other, other comedy schools, you know, from, from different parts of the country let people get away with. Uh, and so I've always felt that in sort of my Midwestern sensibilities were really good for the place that comedy is at in the last 15 years, you know, like in the nineties, comedy was very big and broad. Uh, and for me, I enjoyed it, but I was like, that's not what I want to do. But then when we got into the, the, the two thousands and YouTube came along and then the office, which became much more behavioral and not joke driven. I think that's when I really felt like my kind of comedy could, could blossom because there was an honesty about it. Um, you know, and that's why I think to this day, you know, look, it, it, comedy changes and tastes change all the time. But I think people are much more they, they don't like jokes as much as they like behavioral funny. Like if somebody, you know, on freaks and geeks, you know, the, the network is always honest, like they need more jokes. But I go like the best joke I can do is Martin Starr looking at somebody and going, huh, as opposed to saying some, you know, pithy sort of Neil Simony kind of joke. But again, it always rolls over, but I, I attribute a lot of that to the Midwest and Michigan.
1: And how about your wife? You know, you you she seems to be a big, big barometer uh, for you. Yeah. How, how is that how how long have you been married and, and how, how does that work with her?
3: Yeah, well, coming up on thirty years of marriage, uh she's the greatest and she's funny. We we bonded over our love of of, of comedy. Um she was a three Stooges fan, so there you go. That's- I saw them in
1: concert. What my dad, my dad, when I was a little boy, took me to Kennywood Park just outside of Pittsburgh. Oh my God! And I remember it was raining, and they were there, and I don't remember. I can't. Rem- I know that uh, you know Mo and Larry was there. I don't know. Uh, it was probably the that. Curly Joe years. I'm betting. Yeah, <laughs> maybe. yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not sure, but but um, isn't that something? They were really tell tell us a little bit about them because people are listening. So a lot of people won't know who they are, but there are a lot of people listening who are going to say, "Oh yeah, that takes me back." What, what yeah, about them?
3: It's just an old style of comedy. It's very vaudevillian. It, it's you know, it's it's quite violent because <laughs> you know Mo's just poking people in the eyes and hitting people over the head with with hammers and all that. But there's just something. What I here's what I love, John, about the Three Stooges is that. It's all about the quest for food. And to me, the quest for food is funnier than the quest for sex, the quest for power, anything like that. It, so much of comedy over the years has become about the quest for sex and guys trying to get laid and all this stuff. And I was like, you know what's funny to me? Like the three students walk in and there's a big banquet. And they're like, fellas, eats. And they all run over and they're hiding food in their pants and all this stuff. Like that. It's, it's all about primal need, like the, the most primal needs. Yeah. And, and, and I just find that hilarious.
1: So your wife liked the Stooges and then he, that's how you, you met and tell tell us. And what does she do now? How does she serve as a
3: barometer? She reads everything that I'm thinking of doing, everything that I write, any script that's sent to me that I'm interested in, any book that I write, all that. You know, because she is I always say she's frustratingly populist in that, like, I, you know. You always kind of like, oh, let's oh, let's try to be more heady or let's try to do this and that. And she's just like, you know what? I don't get it, (laughs) you know, but I like that because I think her tastes are very much in tune with what most people like and what I like, too. She keeps me from going on that 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 thing of trying to, you know, do something that's fancier than I should. You know, the, the worst thing that happens in this in the business that I'm in, especially in the movie business, is the quest for awards um, has ruined so many people. It's ruined. It's, it's hurt comedy people because since comedies don't win awards necessarily and don't get nominated for awards, a lot of really funny people try to reject comedy because they're like, well, I'm not getting the respect I want. I want the respect from doing a drama. And that's why you see like really funny people suddenly show up in a drama. But as a, as an audience member, you're frustrated because they're like, oh, oh, they're going to be funny. Oh, wait, wait, why, why are they not being funny? <laughs> why are they crying? Or why is, you know, why is this very serious? And, and you know, people should be able to do whatever they want, and, and that's great, but, you know, it, it, we just don't tend to get the um, the, the respect we want, and which makes a lot of people in comedy sort of reject comedy. But I've just said, you know, over the years, I just, all I want to do is make an audience laugh. I want to, you know, teach them, th- not teach them is, is, is less of a good word. I want to make them feel something and, and teach, hopefully they'll learn something about the the human
2: condition but they'll have fun doing it it's you know it's the pill and the peanut butter basically and how how do you balance that because I will say it is tough right now with we we live in trying times things are, are ginned up super hot right now uh you can't make art that isn't reflective in some ways of of the culture and the cultural conversations, um, and it's hard to make things that don't feel overtly political or preachy. Uh, I was watching Welcome to Flatch, which is great, uh, but even in the in the the the, the tagline, and you guys uh, uh, deal with this right up top with. Um, a little breakdown of what American small towns are and how people have an affinity for them and want to move to them. And I think my my knee-jerk reaction is like, we're going to look at the American small town. What does that mean, blue state versus red state? And like, of course, that's baked into there, but I think you go to a lot of these places and it's baked in a lot less than perhaps people in the media centers say it is. Uh, how do you approach telling a story about America's small towns uh, and balance a little bit of that? Or are you... Uh, uh, or how do you think about approaching something like that that is both very wholesome, but at the same time inherently politicized?
3: Well, I mean, what we, you know, facing this this show, which is about a small town in Ohio— Okay. um it's uh we said we just don't want any politics in it we want this to be about people because that is you know when you're in a small town you know it's all painted like oh my god they're at each other's throats no is everybody's just dealing with each other in an own personal way if it gets into a political conversation sure of course it can go off the rails but that's not what people talk about all the time and so for us it was just like there's the characters in there who clearly you go like oh i bet so and so believes this or so and so but it doesn't factor into their inner interactions that we never wanted to we just like funny characters and being from a small town in michigan i wanted to make sure because the whole time we were pitching this people are like well you're not going to make fun of small towns like why would i make fun of small towns i'm from a small town (laughs) you know i love the people in small towns and i think there's so many shows about big cities and all that 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 people from small towns get the short shrift. And that's why we just said like, let's just make this really funny, heartfelt, but just, it's all about like the quirkiest people you know in town, you know? And that's what I love about comedy. It's just like, I like- Extreme characters in real situations because we all know people who we completely believe that's who they are. They're not putting it on, but you go, yeah, but they're like, they're, they're nutty, you know, but, but in such a charming way that it's fun to kind of see those. So then you get a bunch of those people and you mix them in and you've got this really sweet, fun TV show that I, I'm absolutely in love with this. Welcome to Flash. I can't wait for people to see it.
1: Hey, hey, Paul, don't you think though, you know, this is like with our podcast, you know, People didn't know what to make of it. I think they still don't know what to make of it. But, you know, it's, it's clearly not like we're in here having some fight about politics, right? Don't you think people uh, are just tired of it? Don't you think people just want to stop this and to be. And there's enough great stuff happening in the communities that are fun and inspiring, right? Don't you, don't you think? I mean, that's my sense. I mean, I'm enough 100% of all this you. crap.
3: Hundred percent with you, John. I, I think it's just been so tense and so fighty for so long. You you still see I mean it's it's why it's funny. Like I felt this over the last few years. Cause like right when, you know, uh when when Trump got out, I was kinda like, Oh, well, maybe people now we're just gonna go like, Oh, thank God, we're gonna go back to, you know, comedy and just fun escapism. But there was a fight that was still going on. I felt like if you look at the shows people, you know, like Squid Games, you know, that's like people are still huh. like keyed up, you know, but I felt it, I feel it, the air going out of that balloon over the last, you know, several months to half a year, where I think, like you say, John, I think everybody's just, like, exhausted. We're just, like, we can't, it's not, it's against the human condition to just be
2: in you know, aggression the entire time, and we just want to like people again. Is, yeah. is that why in, in working on a show like Minx, is that why you looked at it, you're like, I think what the American public needs now is to look at Dong's just as many dongs as we can get, like even a montage of male genitalia, just dongs across the board. Was that I sort of in your head? That's the elixir that the public
3: <laughs> needed. <laughs> there was one thing missing. <laughs> no, that, can't. Minx is a, <laughs> but Minx is hilarious. It's, it's a it's very, great. very funny show. Uh, but it's, it's, it's a throwback to the 70s, so uh, which which I love. It's got a fictional retelling of the birth of Playgirl magazine. But um, again, it's what. Here's what I love about that show. But I think the power of that show is it's about underdogs. You know, I mean, you know, even, you know, even uh, Jake Johnson's character of Doug, you know, he runs this sort of like under the counter magazine publisher, but he is kind of the American dream. He's like everybody discounts him, thinks he's garbage, but he's actually super smart and struggling. And, the, you know, here comes this woman who wants to start this feminist magazine and he says, let's do it, but we'll put naked men in it. And it's kind of her fight. But everybody, they're all written off characters of society and you know, how so many of us feel. And so I think that's the power of that show is just like you're really rooting for underdogs and everything I do if you look at anything in my career it's always about underdogs that's the theme that I love and I will always you know do till my dying day
2: what, what do you what do you go back and rewatch of yours do you like doing that and is there anything that uh that you find yourself going back to watch
3: um of my own stuff no I it, I have this thing where when I'm working on something it's all I want to watch. It's all I want to do. I want to show everybody. I want to sit with everybody, watch it. And, and I just love it, love it, love it. And there's always a moment at the premiere, I'm sitting watching it in the premiere and I go, I'm never going to watch this again. <laughs> and, and, and I heart, and occasionally I'll run across it like on an airplane or something. I go, okay. And I'll get caught up. But yeah, I, I tend to, it's, it's like, once you, once you've done it, you walk away from it and hope people can still like, but um, yeah.
2: Uh, can we talk booze? Please. Hello. I love booze. Booze is great. It's a great way to, to break the ice and to deal with demons. So I'm a big drink guy. Uh, <laughs> you have a book coming out uh, called Cocktail Time, Ultimate yep. Guide to Grown-Up Fun. Yep, exactly. You, we've talked a little bit about drinks of choice here on our podcast. I'm wondering if you can tell someone's preferred drink just by looking at them.
3: Hmm. Well, yeah, full disclosure, I have my own gym, too.
2: Yes, that's uh, what I saw. Yes.
3: Harding stalls, a uh, brilliant London dry gin. So uh, I definitely can spot a gin drinker when I see them. But, um, but, but if you I'm know, it costs
1: at... a lot of money to advertise on this show.
3: <laughs> it, oh, oh my, I'm sorry. I mean, I was mean, just talking that's... about some other thing.
1: Okay. Because listen, nobody slips one in on us. We are really on top of <laughs> stuff. And then we have producers and producers to, uh, you know, on top of producers, nothing slips by us.
3: Nothing gets, oh, boy, am I going you just a big blank spot in that part of the podcast? <laughs> <laughs> well, now, so if I were to predict what you guys drink, let's see. Um, hmm, I, I think, John, you seem like a guy who likes wine.
1: Oh, yeah, you know what, that is so, God, yeah. <laughs> listen, I just learned that bourbon is, I lo- this is I thank God I did this this podcast because I didn't know the difference between whiskey and bourbon and I still really don't. Right. Just give me the cheapest thing I can buy and
3: give it as a gift. <laughs> if it comes in a plastic bottle, then
2: yeah, that's not exactly. good. But he is a wine guy. You're spot on. That's that's all you drink, right, John? It
3: really is all I drink, yes. Wine is great. I love wine. Are you more of a red guy or a white guy? Or, or, I'm a
1: Cabernet guy. Uh, ah, yeah, there you California go. Cabernet. You're but I, I would try, you know, Ohio wines and Michigan wines if, you know. <laughs> we have, we, no, have we, we have actually cherry do wine. have some good wine, no, wine no, we, that we, comes we, <laughs> Yeah, I know. <laughs> all right, Paul, and do
3: that,
2: me. Jordan, I think I got you as a tequila guy. Oh, okay. I will say Mezcal. Okay. I like a Mezcal. And I, I like a whiskey. And I will say, you know, I I, I also, I, full disclosure, uh, I have gout uh, because I'm a, a 72-year-old man from the 19, <laughs> uh, 1600s. staff all of a sudden, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and so I desperately, you're not supposed to drink much alcohol when you have gout. And so I desperately was like, but there must be some way around it. They're like, well, maybe a little bit of wine. And I found a few a few articles that mention gin might be good for its anti-inflammatory uh, elements. All the botanicals are good for you. Juniper is a wonderful berry. Uh, and so it. I'm I'm convinced that gin martinis are great for gout. Well, there you go. I mean, I don't want to run afoul of John, but uh, let's just say
3: your clear spirits are uh, are very good for you. Well, no, good, good for you is a strong term, let's say less bad than the other
2: ones. Well, consider it a free idea. If you need a spokesperson who's going to promote gin for uh, health benefits in terms of gout, I can't think of a sexier sell for a gin. So just give me a call. <laughs> what do are you, are
1: you're cutting me out. I mean, what, remember, I'm over here too, Jordan. I mean, we could do this together. i got to tell you, Paul, we're selling garage doors now. Uh, no, it's, we found out these, this lady, you know, paid $22,000 for a garage door. So Jordan is on the case. I'm the salesman. He's the installer. We're going to do it for 15000 Oh, and, nice. Uh, and look, if we need to promote your drink, we're, I mean, think about the Smith Brothers. You know, I mean, look how successful they were. You know? <laughs> will you grow long
3: beards for, for this? <laughs> or will no, we fake beards? You beard, know what? So I can think tougher. of no better spokesman than this we will have a picture of Jordan's big toe and then we'll
2: have <laughs> 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 How does one go about starting your own gin, though?
3: Uh, it's a process. I mean, it's, it, I, I, for years have been saying, I want my own gin. I would tell my agents and stuff. And they're like, well, good luck. You're not like a famous musician or actor or something. I was like, okay, but we just stayed on it, stayed on it and found this company out of uh Calgary called Minhas, which is a big producer of uh beer and also well drinks, well spirits, but they wanted to do a, a premium gin. And so I, they liked the lifestyle that I, I, you know, promote and, um, uh, we join forces and we produce this out of, um, uh, Monroe, Wisconsin. Um, uh, and it's a beautiful uh, London dry gin, uh, in a beautiful bottle. And uh, now we also have a bottle of Negroni that we do through the Rake magazine and, uh, And I'm just very proud. It's honestly, it's probably my proudest thing that I that I've done because I'm a big boozer and I love martinis, and that's my big drink. So, uh, and I formulated just. I basically, I I like all kinds of gins, but I was like, I haven't found the gin that I love, and I always thought if I could just make, if I make my own, I can do the perfect gin. And I and we've won tons of awards. So uh, so far, so good.
2: What is it? How would you articulate uh, what it is specifically that was missing in the gins? that you were having beforehand and what you guys uh, brought to the table. Uh,
3: I didn't want it to be like a traditional gin that's super juniper forward. Cause that's that sort of pine taste, pine cleanser taste that a lot of people go like, I don't like gin. So I wanted to pull back on that. You always have to have juniper cause you're not gin. If you don't have juniper, juniper, but then I wanted to make it like the ultimate martini with a twist, uh, gin. So it it's, it's got some citrus in it. It's got a little peppery back taste on it. Um, but it's very, very smooth, uh, and it, and it, it kind of it, it works in any cocktail. And actually, what I love about it is I really formulated it to be a vodka substitute. So that pretty much, almost ninety percent of vodka drinks you could put this gin into it. It'll add a little
2: bit of extra flavor, but it mm-hmm. won't won't overtake it. Finally, I, will, I mean, because vodka. Let's be vodka's for trash people.
3: Well, yeah, vodka's,
1: it's <laughs> I mean, just it's <laughs> you just want to get drunk.
2: You're drinking vodka. I mean, yeah. What are you doing? Come on.
1: Uh. (laughs) paul do you ever you you guys ever go back to michigan number one and number two when was the last time you 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 went to your high school reunion and did you walk in dressed like you are now because man that is sharp well thank you you, you. i love that jacket if anything happens to you could you send it to me i certainly love
3: to wear that jacket you're in my will you're in my will. okay
1: i mean do you go back ever what what do people say
3: I go back, I definitely go back, but I've never been to a reunion because the movie Carrie always made me think that I would go back and somebody would go nuts (laughs) and and it would all be over. So I've not been, but I I definitely go back to Michigan. I love Michigan. I'm a big supporter of Detroit and and, and all that. And um, yeah, I I just, I love the Midwest. It's, it's, it's who I, who I am.
1: And Detroit's coming back, by the way. I mean, it's, uh, it's really terrific and it's a great town, a great city. Such uh, a great
0: place.
2: Yes. Great people. (laughs) My, bro- my brother lives there, and we went there uh, before the pandemic hit and just spent two days uh, driving around, going to the beautiful art installation at the, uh, the, the, art, the art museum there. And the oh, mural yeah. is fantastic. And one thing that we found was even if you're in your 40s, it is worth it to spend the money to get on a scooter and drive through Detroit a little bit buzzed because nothing will ever get better. <laughs> so I highly recommend that, That's actually their new tourism slogan. You should know that. So. <laughs> <laughs> drive through a little bit buzzed. Well, Paul, thank you so much for, for taking the time to talk to us, giving us some oh. drink tips and, uh, and fill it up our, our TV queue. You've, you've really, you really set us up for success in the next few months.
3: My pleasure. Thank you. No, I, I'm, I'm thrilled to have all these shows coming out. I'm so proud of all of them. And, uh, yeah. And, and if you if you're looking for gin, com. Oops. Sorry, John.
1: <laughs> you're 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 a, you know, I'll tell you what, uh, Paul, you, you're just such a fine, nice person. It's been a pleasure having you on. You really are terrific and Thank you, such Jim. a nice guy.
3: I appreciate that, John, yes, I mean, I and mean, I, I really appreciate everything you have done, so thank you. That means that the world... Thank Jordan, you, sir. Well, then, if that's the
1: true, I'll be waiting for... Look, I don't want a big part, you know. Okay. Why not just have Jordan and I for just, you know, like a really short yeah. part in your, one of your great films? Just You to,
3: know, it's called a cameo,
2: and, and they, they, yeah. they're the heart and soul go. of a movie.
3: Yeah, I don't well, know. Well, I
2: got to say, I, John, if he does spy, too, I got to believe there's there's many other Republicans he could choose from to be in Spy 2. Uh just <laughs> <laughs> have more legitimate reasons to be in there. <laughs> uh, well, Paul's two new series. Welcome to Flash premieres March 17th on Fox and Hulu. And Minx also launches March 17th on HBO Max. Paul Fink. Thank you, sir. Thank you, fellas. Truly appreciate it. Hey, everybody. Jordan here, uh, your favorite host of the Kasich Clever podcast. Thank you for listening this far. If you like what you hear, click like or thumbs up or whatever icon signifies a positive reaction. We love your ratings. We love your thoughts. Reach out to us on social media. Let us know what you want us to talk about because I'm tired of answering the governor's questions and I just prefer to answer yours. Thanks for listening. Talk to you soon. Kasich and Klepper is a production of Treefort Media, hosted and executive produced by John Kasich and Jordan Klepper. Treefort Media's executive producers are Kelly Garner, Lisa Ammerman, and Matthew Kugler. Line producers, Oscar Guido. Audio direction by Tom Monahan, head of audio for Treefort. With production and editing by Maxwell Carney. Talent booking by Blythe Asher. With additional production help from Tim Schauer, Haley Mandelberg, Colin Motel, and Anastasia Ibrahim. This podcast is powered by ACAST.